Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. We commonly think of Whitman as the great American poet, the gray-bearded bard who captures the democratic music of our country with, as he called it, his barbaric yelp. And, sure enough, Whitman thought of himself this way. I hear America singing, he famously wrote, in the fourth edition of Leaves of Grass. What's left? We commonly think of Whitman as the great American poet, the gray-bearded bard who captures the democratic music of our country with, as he called it, his barbaric yelp. And, sure enough, Whitman thought of himself this way. I hear America singing, he famously wrote, in the fourth edition of Leaves of Grass. What's less commonly known is that Whitman had a very clear idea as to how a poet should create this song. In his preface to the very first edition of Leaves of Grass, that book he would add to and enhance throughout his life, he describes his vision of the poetic process. The sailor and traveler, the anatomist, chemist, astrologer, geologist, phrenologist, spiritualist, mathematician, historian, and lexicographer are not poets, but they are the lawgiver of poets, and their construction underlies the structure of every perfect poem. For Whitman, it's the craftsmen and scientists who lay down the law, and the poets must follow them. Now, if your ear got caught in that list on a few odd inclusions, astronomer and geologist make sense, but spiritualist and phrenologist? You're not alone. In her new book, Intended American Dictionary, Kate Partridge not only notices, but also explores some of the more unusual and surprising elements of Whitman's poetry and life, such as the fact that he was fascinated by phrenology, a 19th century pseudoscience that was very popular in his moment. Phrenologists claim to be able to describe a person's nature from the bumps on his or her skull. In fact, that first edition of Leaves of Grass, that book Whitman would rewrite all his life, it was published by two famous phrenologists named Fowler and Wells. It's this Whitman that Partridge sings and celebrates in her engaging, intimate, and keenly humorous new book. Kate Partridge, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Eric. It's good to be talking to you. It's good to have you here, and I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, The Intended American Dictionary, which is a, a, a very provocative title. The one we should have had all along um, <laughs> seems to be the suggestion. But before we get to the book, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about you know, sort of the, the context that, that led you to create it, you know, your artistic sensibility, kind of what took you in this direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've always been interested in this genre of the lyric response to the archive and um, writers who are doing kind of a poet's essay response to someone that they really, really love. So I really love uh, Susan Howe's My Emily Dickinson. Um, recently, I've, I was just reading Ann Carson's Albertine Workout, which I think is another good example of that um, kind of poets riffing on 
work that they really love, that work that's already kind of been processed critically and that we have a sense of what it means. So Whitman, I think, is someone obviously everybody has read, right? But I wanted to be able to have some fun with Whitman um, and play with kind of what hadn't been discussed in his work. And I was taking a class at the very end of my MFA at George Mason University on Whitman and Dickinson and kind of thinking about how these two poets function as part of our national literature, whatever that is. And I started going um, just for fun to the Library of Congress archive uh, in D.C. and looking at some of Whitman's notebooks. Um, So like his little moleskins where he was pasting stuff from newspaper articles and keeping his own notes. And I just got really into um, thinking about his process and kind of what you could determine was happening behind the scenes or what you could kind of speculate about from his from his notes. Um, So I spent some afternoons over a course of a summer, I guess that was 2013 just taking notes and kind of writing down and copying pages from his manuscripts. And then um, I spent the next year just letting that material kind of percolate. And at that point in my life, I was moving to Alaska, which was a big, huge change from Washington, D.C. And um, so a lot of kind of the personal um response to the idea of what what is a nation? What does it mean to be moving across um, a country into a place that I think we think of as being more abstract in the American imagination, Alaska? Um, that that comes into it as well while I'm kind of thinking about who, who my Whitman is, I guess. So I, um, I spent a year just working on these poems, I guess, and uh, and riffing on women. So that's the, that's the backstory. Well, so there's a lot there. And uh, one of the places I would just want to start would be, so, so the archive has traditionally been the place that the scholars disappear into, right? And uh, working firsthand with these materials. Um, and I've gone in and, and looked at the, the Dickinson archive. Could you tell us a little bit about, about what it's like to actually be working with the notebooks that Whitman himself was doing his original work through for his poetry? And I mean, that's got to be quite an experience for a poet. Yeah, it really was pretty amazing to have access to those materials. And I will say as a caveat that uh, I looked at most of these materials on microfilm. So I cannot say, honestly, that I have held the notebooks in my hand. I was looking at them on um, film, like scrolling past me <laughs> on this old fashioned machine, which was which was fun. Um, but, you know, I think that there was something interestingly removed about the experience that stood in contrast to the intimacy of seeing the notebooks and his handwriting, because to go into the rare manuscript reading room at the Library of Congress where this stuff is, you have to go past all of these like security checkpoints and you've been very thoroughly quizzed by a series of diligent Library of Congress staff about like what your intentions are before you get to that point. Um, And you go into the archive room, which I know you've experienced, and it's freezing cold and kind of terrible in there. You've been stripped of all your belongings. Um, So it's just, it was just me and 
the text when I got there, you know, and like my one pencil and piece of paper um, that I had hung on to. So when I um, actually got to, to looking at the text, I was unpacking, you know, the little boxes of, of microfilm, um, like spools of, of film, I guess is what you call those and putting them on the machine and, and kind of breaking the machine. And I think that it made me, um, think about all the different like breaks and fragments in Whitman's process because it was kind of start and stop for me to figure out this old technology I wasn't that familiar with. Um, but then when I actually saw his handwriting on the screen, you know, it felt, um, stunningly contemporary in some ways because you can see in the notebooks all the places where he's done little doodles and the margins of weird stuff like there are a bunch of little hands or he's like sketched something um and you can see in some of the notebooks where he's like correcting and revising drafts of the poems so that i mean as i think it always is to see a poet's drafts and process was pretty spectacular um, to think about how how the poems were changing direction as he wrote and also because of the way Whitman's notebooks um, have this very like literal cut and paste quality to see the different influences that were coming in so um, you know it, side by side with the drafts of poems there would also be like newspaper articles about pseudoscience and um, phrenology really started to come into my project because of that because there were articles about phrenology from the time just um, pasted into the notebooks too um, so I think that a lot of that kind of stylistic, and formal element came into my poems by virtue of the fact that, that you could see it all so clearly in his notebooks. I, I think it's probably important for the listeners to know at this point that, that passages of Whitman's notebooks show up as closely as you can reproduce the written versions of them. And there's even a, a moment in the manuscript itself where um, the speaker says that, you know, she's trying to, to, create the the layout in the exact same way that Whitman moved his own hand to, to more inhabit it and embody the process of, of writing it down. Um, so, so I'm curious, um, there's Whitman doing the work that he's going to be using to compose, you know, what we now think of as the great American poets uh, or poetry. And uh, here you are making a poem out of his rough drafts. There's something kind of wonderful about that. Yeah, <laughs> I think that Whitman, because he's so often depicted as kind of the good gray poet, and we think of like Leaves of Grass as um, a giant kind of unapproachable tome, I think it's really fun and important to go back and think about what what he was actually in his time, you know, which is this journalist in Brooklyn um, kind of grabbing lots and different pieces of things that are happening around him. You know, I think that makes him a lot more accessible. Um, when you think about how his poems are have this kind of quotidian thing about them where he's walking around looking at everything, I think the notebooks in some ways are closer to that, or it's easier for me to reach that side of Whitman through the notebooks than it is sometimes through the poems, which are so beautiful um, and wild and kind of crazy, but also are polished and feel like they've kind of been stowed away in the canon. 
<laughs> it's true. It's true. He's uh, he's one of the few poets that seems to be his own myth. I think Dickens yeah, is the same really way. Um, so he talks a little bit about his working draft. It's a passage you quote uh, in your book where he says, you know, I must not fail to saturate my poems with things substantial, American scenes, climates, names, places, words, pertinent facts, you know, animals, texts, crops, grains, vegetables, flowers. Um, you mentioned when you, you first started describing the project that, that your process is one of percolation. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about that, right? Here he is giving himself directives, and uh, here you are moving across the country and just kind of letting this experience settle. What is the the nature of that kind of artistic process? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, the kind of saturation that I like to have in my poems is kind of to look at any subject from as many different angles as I can come up with. So if I'm going to think about what it means to be uh, part of uh, a nation, um, or if I'm going to think about what it means to engage with Whitman's work, you know, I want to be so copying the poems by hand and reading them in the giant tome, um, but also just kind of walking around and, and thinking about what it is exactly that he's trying to convey and like the quality of all the, all the images. And I think my um, writing process, so you asked about the percolation, is a lot of walking around and kind of waiting for things to settle. Um, one of my teachers once told me to not write down a poem until you were absolutely sure that you like couldn't wait any longer to write it down, you know, that the urge was like bursting forth from you at that point. And that's a a piece of advice I've always tried to kind of hang on to. Um, Because as you can see in in Intended American Dictionary, um, I'm using a lot of different scraps of stuff from personal narrative, from uh, quotation, and from also just kind of lyric meditations. And so I think sometimes it just takes me a while to figure out what all the connections are between whatever it is that I'm obsessed with at that point. Um, And so the holding off is actually kind of important. Um, But then the other part, I think, of the percolation is just once I've decided what the stuff is that's going to go into a poem, um, is to draft it all out and put it together and move it around in scraps on my floor for days um, and make everyone who lives with me really insane (laughs) Um, and just, just kind of live with it. And I think that sometimes the kind of like accidental juxtapositions or kind of accidental connections that happen um, by just having the stuff physically around you, like the scraps of paper are really interesting. Um, you know, and then sometimes my cat walks through it and the order ends up better. So who knows? I think that's absolutely true. People always think you're joking when you say stuff like that. But the happy accident is documented in art, right? It's Gertrude Stein <laughs> coming into Picasso's studio and sticking her card on his uh, on his canvas and him including it. And uh, yeah, well, well, so this is could you tell us a little bit about the form of the book? I think that would be be really fascinating because it's, it's not only excerpts of lyric meditation um, that are autobiographical or, or bits of his notebooks. It's also there's a, a really kind of charming email exchange that takes place through the whole thing. So can you give us a sense of what we encounter in the intended American dictionary? Because we <laughs> yeah, don't encounter def- definitions, really, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> the definitions are are one component, I guess. And I stole the title um, shamelessly from Whitman um, and the parts in his notebook where he's keeping little lists of words that he thinks would be good for an American dictionary as opposed to like a British dictionary. Um, and he was obviously not the only person working on that kind of project in the in the 19th century. But his list was really strange and had a lot of slang. Um, and I think words kind of of his own invention in it. Um, so in my manuscript, uh, I'm I'm stealing, like you said before, passages from Whitman kind of transcribed as closely as it's possible um, to reproduce them with all of the things that he's like underlined and gone back and crossed out Um but then I also am using a lot of quoted text from um, textbooks about phrenology. So the, the science of studying the bumps on people's heads, basically, and, and thinking about um, what the shape of the head says about personality um, and intelligence and all kinds of other factors. And we should come back and, to this because this is a real big yeah. thing in the 19th century. I can I can hear somebody out there going, what? <laughs> yes, I know, right? There's a lot to unpack there with just that <laughs> subject. There, So there's there's some of that because the language of it is so strange and interesting um, that I really love the, the texture of it. There are, like you said, some, some narrative passages where I am um, talking about moving to Alaska, but also kind of my daily life, drinking coffee and, <laughs> and so on. Um, but then I think part of what you're referencing in the, the email exchanges um, and in a few other sections are the segments where I'm kind of trying to make sense of whether any of this Whitmanian stuff can be applied to a contemporary life. Um, and I uh, spent some time while I was writing this manuscript at a residency separate from my partner, who is the, the subject and object of some of these email exchanges. Um, and I was emailing her to ask a bunch of questions basically about her phrenological readings and whether ours were supposed to be compatible according to these like 19th century guides and whether um, we were suitable for marriage, which I think is like a funny and inappropriate way to try to figure out that question. <laughs> um, and so a lot of our correspondence is recorded here, which she has gracefully allowed me to include, um, in which we're just trying to figure it out because it's actually really hard to explain to someone who hasn't read the phrenology text how to read the head bumps and what they mean. Um, and as it turns out, we we both had a number of negative characteristics affiliated with like murdering people and um, being really extravagant. <laughs> So it didn't turn out well is kind of the answer to that project. Um, but it's fun to put that in contrast, I think, with Whitman's hobby of um, going to have regular phrenological readings. And his readings tended to turn out very well. Um, and he published them in Leaves of Grass. So uh, I guess his he had a better brain than me, which we could have assumed. <laughs> but I wanted to try to find out. Yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, you're, you're right that he, he publishes it multiple times you point out in your book. Um, mm -hmm. so it's no mistake. It's no retraction. And, uh, to me, the first time I read it, it, it sounded very Whitmanian because it's just this catalog. You are expressive, expansive. You are, you are, you are. Um, and so, so tell us a little bit more about phrenology. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the nice things about the book is that it, 
it takes Whitman out of the context of being this mythic great American poet. It it recontextualizes him through his notebook so that he's, like you said, more approachable, um, but also kind of engagingly strange, you know, this love for the bumps of his head and the roundness of his skull. Um, so, so what was this 19th century phenomenon with, you know, the Fowlers and everything? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's interesting you say that because I think one of the things that I find most delightful about Whitman is like his strangeness and just kind of reveling in that. And his belief in phrenology is definitely a component of that. Um, so phrenology was a really popular pseudoscience um, in the late 1800s, especially. And if you lived in New York, as Whitman did, you could go to a phrenology parlor, basically, um, and have somebody do your phrenological reading. So kind of like going to a psychic or something, but with more um, kind of scientific value behind it. And um, so someone would feel your head <laughs> on the outside and compare where there were grooves or where there were like protrusions and compare it to a series of very complicated charts that were supposed to tell you about kind of your natural strengths and weaknesses. And then they would make recommendations about what, what you should do, like what careers you would be suitable for, um, what kinds of personality traits you have that might match up well with other people of um, similar or, or different traits. So I kind of think of it as like an intersection between um, like a, a kind of brain astrology um, and I don't know, fortune telling or something, but um, it was considered to be a, a hard science at the time. Another weird feature of phrenology um, establishments was that they would have these busts and heads of famous people on display. So you could go see what like Thomas Jefferson's head was supposed to have looked like or whatever, and you could compare your own head to them. So there was definitely an aspirational quality to it. Um, and Whitman definitely seems to have been trying to set himself into that aspirational category, because like you said, he had, uh, he had regular chronological readings. And when he includes them in leaves of grass, uh, it will say like on a scale of one to seven, your, um, your adhesiveness is a six or a seven, seven being like the, the highest of some quality. Um, and so he revised his numbers to, to be better, basically to better fit the uh, category of what a poet was supposed to be according to these guidelines. So I find that really fascinating because I think that, um, you know, probably his head was not radically changing shape, but rather that he, he was trying to mold himself literally and physically into this, uh, into this ideal, which is kind of cool. So the gist was that it was better to have a pretty even head. He didn't want to have uh, excesses of any particular qualities. He didn't want to have deficiencies. He wanted to kind of be like in the three to four category in most things. But everybody would have something that was a little bit off in one direction or the other. And that's kind of what makes you you and like particularly suited for your for your own interests. Um, so like the fact that I rate very high on the uh, like 
homicidal category probably means that I would be, <laughs> I should quit teaching and, and go just into murder. Um, but you could, you could make that kind of recommendation. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's the quick phrenology overview. But you can find all of these uh, guidelines still. And I strongly recommend to people that you uh, try out <laughs> phrenologizing yourself because it's very weird. Yeah, I, I can suddenly imagine people sort of reaching up and feeling their head and thinking, what, what does that groove mean? What does that bump mean? Where yeah. do we go from there? Well, one of the nice things that I think you bring out about the, the phrenology is, um, is the way in which that sort of intersects with or is, is at one with Whitman's love for men um, and the, just the way in which, you know, you have to touch one another's head. And, and there's this sense of Whitman's whole, you know, the way in which desire functions in his poetry is something that this book is also very much interested uh, in exploring. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that there's so much desire in all of Whitman. <laughs> um, you know, in a lot of the poems, he's just expounding great enthusiasm about like a horse he saw or just, uh, you know, people people walking down the street, you know, so he has this great like enthusiasm and desire, I think, to be close to everything. Um, but especially men, <laughs> and especially um, men of this particular sort of like, athletic, common man um, that he idealizes. And the phrenology, yeah, I agree, is interesting because it provides for him, I think, an explanation, but also kind of a, um, a justification. It, it functions both ways for, for how he's responding to people around him. Um, so there's a particular category in phrenology called adhesiveness, which is your um, like desire to be intimate on a, a level of friendship, but also on a romantic level with other people of the same sex. Um, and there's a different one for people of the opposite sex. So there's, um, there's an interesting way in which phrenology is kind of interested in the theory of gender and sexual orientation, but they haven't come to understand it or put it in terms that really make any sense with the way we think of those things um, today. Yeah, but Whitman scored very high in adhesiveness and like closeness to other men, and that's recorded in the, in the phrenology. So whether or not you think that there's any like scientific value in that, um, it's recorded here. And uh he was concerned about his, his adhesiveness to Peter Doyle becoming too high at one point, which is in the notebooks, um, which is really interesting. So not only is he um, obviously putting some value in that category, but he also is, is trying to um, manipulate his behavior based on, or at least he's writing that in his notebook. It, it's it's a charming moment, I think, uh, in your book that you just kind of quote that and let that hang in the air. Yeah, because what <laughs> it's kind of a delightful revelation, you know, when you see someone like Whitman just saying, like, I think I'm really coming on too strong to this person or like, I think that my whatever my desire is getting a little out of hand because he's so uninhibited about basically everything else. Um, yep. Yeah, so and I I don't want to go too far. And I, I try to be kind of careful in this book about not um putting too much onto these moments where Whitman um, 
is dropping these these phrenological readings because I think there is a lot of um, potential for different interpretations. But I think that some of those moments are just so poignant where you have to think like he there's something going on beside behind the scenes here that that we're not seeing. And I don't want to put on to it um, how I'm reading it. But I think it's important that we think about that moment and what it must have meant for him. I think that that's one of the virtues of the form that you've chosen this juxtaposition of, of both poems, but then also fragments is that you can, you can let the white space and the, the way in which the constellation comes together, tell its own story, but you don't have any kind of tendacious interpretation that gets put upon it that, you know, scholarship might ask you, well, so what does this mean? Right. And you can just let the, the fact hang and let the, the potential meanings resonate without trying to pin it down to something in particular. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one thing I like about working in a really associative form like this is that I'm certainly implying things based on what I've decided to put around those passages. Um, But it really does allow you some freedom to also hang back and let the white space kind of create, create its own meaning. Um, And I think that also using a lot of, white space around fragments allows a kind of um, spontaneity that you wouldn't get if you went in in a more expository direction about what things mean, because in that gap, the reader has to do something, (laughs) you know? Um, So it's kind of bringing um, in an opening, I guess, in the interpretation where, where other people um, can bring whatever, whatever their own meaning is to these strange passages. Yeah, I, I like poetry that asks the reader to do some work that doesn't just kind of hand it over. Here's what I felt. Here's what it means. Here's how it resonates and hits the sublime or something like that. So, Kate, I would be very curious to, to turn to a little bit of the, the material about Alaska that's in here. You know, you had mentioned at the beginning um, that you were writing this while you were moving. And uh, Whitman Whitman is one of those people that we think writes the great American poem. And I'm curious if whether or not you see, you know, the intended American dictionary as fitting in that tradition. Wow, that puts some weight on it, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, I think that one thing that was so great for me about moving to Alaska right after grad school was that it kind of is a place that exists outside of, I think, how Whitman was thinking of America, at least, um, as kind of, so Whitman, towards the end of his life, is thinking a lot about trains as kind of a metaphor for um, expansion. And there's some complicated politics about that, right, about how he feels about the progress of colonialism. Um, But Alaska is in kind of the separate space geographically above and also in the American imagination. You know, I think that the way a lot of uh, people interact with Alaska is through myth um, and through literature, which gives it a really interesting um, space. So when I, when I actually moved up teaching, um, you know, I was immediately grappling with all of these ideas I had about what it meant to be in America and what it meant to be American um, that just really no longer applied. And I, um, it was the first time for me living in kind of a boundary space of um, the U.S. And 
everything about what I thought, you know, the landscape was or what that I thought um, it meant to be kind of close to a group of people culturally was really challenged. And so I think that, um, yeah, for me, part of the problem of Alaska in this book is figuring out how to map um, some of these concepts that still work really well from Whitman. Um, especially I'm stealing some stuff from his essays like Democratic Vistas um, about what it what it means to be part of a nation, um, how to think about those things in a place where they, they really don't fit, <laughs> but it's also important to our politics in a, in a contemporary sense to figure out how they do fit um, and what we can do, whether Whitman essentially is salvageable, I guess, at this point, um, or whether his ideas about what it means to be part of a nation um, are just kind of fundamentally uh, fundamentally dated, I guess. And I'm not sure I've, I've solved that problem in any sense for myself, but that's um, kind of where I'm starting here. And Part of the way, I guess, that I'm trying to get into that is just thinking about what's different between his life walking down the streets in New York and my life walking down the streets of, of Anchorage, Alaska. Um, it's a lot. And for him, the physical presence is so much what it means to be part of a democracy that that's part of the problem that I want to to think about. And that that certainly is the the kind of classical locus for how he defines America in Leaves of Grass and especially Song of Myself, right? It's the life of the street and it's the, the throng of Manhattan and the, all the different people. So if you're walking down a very different street, you're hitting a very different America. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, some of what he's describing is still so vibrant, like, um, the diversity of people he's encountering, um, and just the sense of being part of a community that has um, some corresponding interests by just by virtue of being a community. But then I think one of the things that's really different about my experience in Alaska, even though I was in an urban setting, uh, kind of is that the wilderness is so present. And I think that a lot of writers in the Northeast, at least, um, start to lose some of that sense of the immediate wilderness um, by the time of Whitman. And it's still so present in Alaska where, you know, you will walk past a moose on the street. Um, and so there's there's a strangeness and a little bit of danger, um, but mostly just like an oddity, I think, that that challenges your idea of what it means to be in a community that seems to also really presently include um, nature, I guess, and really direct encounters with the ecosystem. So for me, part of where I end up going, I think, is to think more about um, how it's significant to think about the land and natural ecosystems as part of whatever a democracy is. That would make sense. I think that, uh, you know, even I'm calling you from Appalachia, where we're surrounded um, by forests. And even even here, you can choose to have your natural experience. You walk out into it, and then you walk away from it. But it's, it would be very different if you were in a place where you did not have a choice because it was imposed upon you or it had not yet been fully made distinct through, you know, development and things like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I actually just moved this past summer to Los Angeles. So now I'm kind of in the space of trying to process what the experience of Alaska was. Um, but I think what you said is absolutely correct, that if you're in a space that um, hasn't had as long of a history of kind of urban and technological development, you're seeing still, I think, some of the changes Whitman is describing, you know, the like construction of railroads and the construction of urban spaces in Alaska is really within the last hundred years. So within actually the memories of a lot of the older people who live there. And so there's a way in which um, some of what he's talking about in terms of what he deems progress is still really present and salient in a space like that. Well, so you're, you're, you're talking from LA. You've been in Alaska. You were in Washington DC. That's pretty much going around the outer rim of America. I guess if you get a, a teaching gig in Hawaii, we'll have a different kind of conversation. <laughs> uh, but I, I am curious. You're you're also a um, you know, an admirable literary citizen. You're you contribute to a press as one of its editors. You work for for Vita. Um, what do you see right now as, as sort of the challenges of American poetry? What what should American poetry aspire toward? I mean, Whitman was, if anything, an aspirational poet. You know, Emerson set him on fire and off he went. Um, what what should the American poet be aspiring toward in our moment? Well, I think that in my work with the two organizations you've just mentioned, um, Gazing Grain Press and Work on the Vita Count, um, that's one way in which I'm trying to work towards a goal that I think a lot of people have right now, which is thinking about how we um, make our literary spaces more inclusive um, and more welcoming for, for people from diverse backgrounds of, of all sorts. Um, so that's why why I've been involved with those two organizations. Um, as part of kind of the broader question, though, I think that those qualities of um, valuing diversity and valuing um, kind of the experience of community have to be present in the poetry, too. And I think that's one thing that really draws me to Whitman. Um, is that he's someone who's not afraid to just revel in joy. And I think that there are certainly writers who who are doing that now, like I think particularly of like Ross Gay's most recent book, which is so much about joy and pleasure. Um, and I think that a lot of people have said critically that there's a lot of irony in American poetry now. Um, and I use actually a lot of irony in my own poetry, but I hope with the goal of producing um, pleasure and joy and kind of delight in the in the strangeness, um, which I, is a distinction I guess I would make a little bit. And really the poets I'm most enjoying reading now are the ones who are really kind of um, critiquing but celebrating at the same time just what the human experience is. Um, and so I don't know <laughs> what an American poetry is. And that's, that's a question I'm still very much um, working on sorting out, but I'm really interested in looking back, I guess, at, at these people who have spoken across many generations and trying to figure out exactly 
you know, kind of what the nexus of their um, engagement and pleasure was with their experience, because I think there's a lot there that still seems um, admirable and replicable in the present moment. Um, And so I think another component of that is just thinking about whose work has not yet been um, given as much scrutiny for whatever reasons to do with how they how the canon's been constructed. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who would give us the same pleasure, you know, as studying a Whitman, and I'm I'm interested in thinking about what those voices are as well. Well, if you are not interested in fully articulating an answer to a totally unfair question of what should be the vision of all American poetry, which seems perfectly <laughs> fine to me, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a fair question to ask. I just can't answer it. Um, yeah, I've been working for, oh gosh, uh, the last year or two, I guess, on um, a project that's more ekphrastic so it's still archival in nature um but i have been working on a project with a set of photos that the anchorage museum has in its collection um i can't write unless i go to a cold freezer archive space i guess and there are a bunch of photos from the construction of the alaska railroad which runs from like the bottom middle of Alaska, basically up to Fairbanks and was constructed between like 1913, 1914 and 1920. Um, And so that sounds like a very kind of industrial, straightforward project to some extent, I think, but it really wasn't at all linear. Um, There are all kinds of like environmental not catastrophes, but environmental hurdles that happen when you try to build basically anything in Alaska um, that are documented in the photos. And there's also some really interesting um, documentation in the photos of just what it was like to live in the railroad camps um, at that time, you know, World War One is about to begin, and um, there's some really interesting gender dynamics about what uh, women were doing on these kinds of big industrial projects. So I've been writing a series of poems and lyric essays that, that respond to these images, and I think are a lot more invested in this question of um, how the landscape and how ecosystems respond to um this uh, sort of technological progress that we, that we think of sometimes as being a linear narrative, but I think is fundamentally not that. Well, I wonder if we could we could close by returning to a question that that you touched on earlier, which is, you know, when you describe that project, it it sounds to me like the kind of thing that a scholar would do, right? That here's this archival material. Um, you know, it's this moment in American history and we need a monograph of 300 word or 300 pages that three other scholars will eventually read, uh, you know, the, the scholarly project, what can, what can a poet do with that kind of material? What does poetry allow us to encounter if that's, that's its material, if that's its source that we, that we wouldn't get if we didn't have a poet writing on it? That's a great question. I think for me, the the value of bringing poetry and the lyric into this kind of archival space is that 
it lets us respond to the language of um, the projects in a different way. And it lets us think about them in a way that, that is not necessarily analytical, but is, is an emotional response. Um, I think that, so obviously there's great value in doing scholarly analytical work on um, subjects like westward expansion and colonial projects, but poetry lets us, um, I think, find the spaces that haven't been filled in um, and to think about kind of the resonance and the silences around how these projects operated and um, impacted people and the land. And so um, by, by writing these kind of lyric riffs or, or um, talkbacks, we're creating a different narrative um, that's more complicated than whatever the official record is. And I'm really interested in what that space is between official record and the reality of lived experience and then kind of triangulating that with what it's like as a contemporary reader to be thinking about how um, these things impacted later events. Um, I guess the third thing that I think uh, comes in here too is that poetry brings a sense of um, spontaneity um, and mystery as Elizabeth Bishop says to things that otherwise could be treated as kind of a hard fact. Um, and I like the poetry can question things in that way and, and make strange things that we think we have a clear understanding of like a railroad, for example. Um, you know, I, I think I'm a relatively knowledgeable person, but when I get down into thinking about like really how something that's such a grand project functions, um, it's really hard for me to figure out. And it makes me go into these spaces of, of metaphor and of questioning my understandings of um, how language works and really how anything works. And so there's also a sense in which um, in addition to opening up space in the historical project, I think it asks me to, um, open up spaces within myself where it makes clear what things I really don't know um, and what things I do. Well, with that elegant and excellent answer, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that book when it comes out. <laughs> Absolutely. Kate Partridge, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It's been so great to talk to you. My name is Eric LeMay. And you've been listening to an interview with Kate Partridge, author of Intended American Dictionary on the New Books Network.